You are listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. When the fascination has been recognized, this compulsion to imitate, to identify what would be called identification, the recognition of a principal order, the identification with it. Now, this establishes a pattern of action. It's a pattern of action that in the first instance has been generated by an experience. Now the pattern of action is handed down, and the people to whom it's handed do not have the experience. All they have is the pattern of action, or the verbal formulae that go with it. If you don't have the impulse, what good is this thing? This we call the deterioration or degeneration of myth and ritual, where the inhabiting inspiration is gone, and all you have then is a form, a formula. The first then, fascination, second, imitation, third, deterioration or degeneration of the myth, and fourth, reapplication. You think of some reason for doing it. Um, now think about prayers. Very commonly, prayer is applied. A spontaneous prayer that bursts from the heart is one thing. A kind of hallelujah or a prayer of, uh, of reverence. But praying so that something will happen, that's an application of the prayer principle. So the rain will come, so that little Johnny won't die. All of the touching and uh, woeful aspects of human life are in here. One mustn't speak disrespectfully of this. But it's not the primary creative thing. It's an application of something that has been inherited. I've been working now for years on uh, the traditional mythologies. In all of the traditional mythologies, the mythological formulae are presented to childhood. One is expected to have the experiences. One may or may not have the experiences. A great deal, and one hears this all the time, a great deal of the anxiety that comes in people's lives is because they do not have the experience they're supposed to have when such and such takes place. My father died and I didn't have the right feelings. Is there something wrong with me? Uh, the tradition is presented. Now, in what I'm calling creative mythology, you have the opposite situation. You do not have the presentation of a system of images and then the expectation that someone will have an experience. You have an experience, an experience of order, an experience of a sentiment about life, an experience of some subtle field of relationships, of possibilities, and you seek a means for communication to someone else. This need for communication is a very lovely and basic positive thing in human beings. You seek a means for communication. With whom can you communicate and how can you do it? You cannot communicate to anyone who hasn't had the experience, too. Uh, try to explain what it's like, the experience of skiing to someone who's never skied. You have to think of some possible analogy. Uh, 
the, the business of the experience of love, what it does to one's life, this kind of love, that kind, another kind, uh, love for one's child and so forth. You can't communicate this to anyone who doesn't have a child, who hasn't been in love and so forth. But to anyone who has, a little signal will make the communication. This is what mythology is. This is what the symbols of myth are. They are energy-evoking signs, energy-evoking and channeling signs that serve to make an experience leap from one center, one person, to another. The, uh, now, one looks for realms in modern life where this kind of communication is taking place. The most significant, the most important, by this I don't mean now that I'm going to move in with the Museum of Modern Art by any means, is art. The experience of a genuine artist, I don't mean a faker who's uh, found out how to make money, the, uh, the man who really has something he wants to communicate through the image of art is in this sphere. And I want now, for uh, a very brief time across this talk, to say something about the basic principles of art, so that um, by this uh, I hope to indicate the relationship of this kind of art experience to the experience of uh, the higher mythologies. All of the mythologies come originally from artists. There's no exception to this. Poets, seers, Men who have had visions and who have communicated visions, every one of the traditions, even the most socially oriented, group-oriented tradition, the Hebrew tradition, there's no other in the world as strong as the Hebrew, and this emphasis on the group stems from one or two seers, according to the tradition, Abraham and Moses, alone. They bring it, and people participate then, as a group, but the image, the, the precipitating inspiration comes from a single intuitive seer. All of the Hindu tradition comes from this, and everyone is invited finally to leave his group and go have a vision. Among the American Indians, this was the case, and so on. So, in dealing with the modern artist, we're dealing with the man who corresponds to the seers and teachers and rishis and saints of the past. Now let's just see what the artist has to do. I take as my great artist, as has already been indicated here, James Joyce. Uh, James Joyce, uh, I think uh, not everyone would agree, but enough to give me comfort. This is the greatest modern uh, literary man of the 20th century. A brilliant young man in his um, first important work, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, he gives a statement about the laws of aesthetics, as he understands them, which remained valid for him throughout his life, all the way through the great works of Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake, he maintained this. So it's also a very clear statement of aesthetics, which is a very difficult thing to talk about. So this is what I want to give you. Now, Joyce distinguishes, you're going to be surprised by what we're coming out with here. Joyce distinguishes between what he calls proper and improper art. 
Proper means art serving its own proper function, namely the function of art. Improper means art in the service of something else, for instance, advertising. Now the distinction between proper and improper art is as follows. Proper art is static. Improper art, kinetic, I'll explain this. Kinesis means moving. Static means standing. Kinetic. Improper art moves the observer either toward or away from the object depicted. An apple is depicted in such a way that you want to eat it. It makes your mouth water. That's a good advertisement for a certain kind of apple. A refrigerator is depicted with a lot of smiling people around it, so that you think, oh, what a wonderful refrigerator. I will buy that one. This is art in the service of advertising. Joyce calls this pornography. Uh, if Crystal's mother is depicted in such a way and presented to you, and you experience it in such a way, you think, well, the darling old lady, I'd love to have tea with that lady. That is pornography. A, a forest scene, so that you think, oh, I'd love to be there, wandering through those woods. That's a good way to get people into Yellowstone National Park, but that is not the proper function of art. That is pornography. Or, the artwork is depicted in such a way, particularly, let's say, in the social criticism type of thing, that you reject this type of society, or you're always criticizing the society, or advertising it. This is didactic. Art that is in the service of moral indoctrination, political propaganda. This is why nothing can come out of a, out of a well, such a thing as communist um, social realism or social idealism or social whatever that is not proper art that is art in the service of now a good deal of ecclesiastical art has fallen into this that is to say the real experience of the religion is not what is depicted it's often difficult to communicate it but what is depicted are some sentimental little touches of the story which we associate with it and so forth in order to present moral lessons or something like this. Well, now, what does that leave? If we're not to be filled with desire or with loathing, those are the two kinetic emotions, desire and loathing, what are we going to be experiencing? Well, let's move over then to the side of the static. Now, this brilliant young James Joyce says, I've gone to Thomas Aquinas for my uh, study of aesthetics. We would have expected anyone to do that. Uh, Aquinas says that the art object renders three stages of experience. He uses the Latin words which are translated. The Latin words are integritas, consonantia, Integritas means wholeness. Now suppose we were going to do a picture of something here. Let's put a frame around just this much. This is what's going to be in our picture, wholeness. This part of the 
table here is not part of the picture. That's other. This part of the upright is other. Everything else in the room is other, but everything that's in that picture is one. It is one thing. Within the frame, we have one thing. And this thing is not a reference to something else. It's this thing. Now, when that has been achieved, then what is important is whether this element is here or here. That is to say, rhythmical relationship, consonantia, the rhythm of beauty. Rhythm is the instrument of art. Rhythm is the magical thing. There is something about rhythm, and here is the whole mystery, which, when it is properly achieved, fascinates, holds you, fixates you. It is through rhythm, the, the recognition of a principle of order, that one is fixated. And that means that something in oneself is coming into accord or finds accord in this order. Don't try to tell me what it is. Don't try to ask yourself what it is. You can't do that. When the rhythm of beauty has been rendered, then we have what he calls claritas or radiance. The object seems to radiate its own value. And you don't have to say why. Now, life must radiate like that. Otherwise, you're not experiencing it. When Hamlet sits down and asks to be or not to be, he's not alive. Uh, a lot of people think he's become deep that way, but no, he's become shallow. He has lost touch with the spontaneity of existence, which asks for no reason why. There is no why about life. It is. In Buddhism, the Buddha is called the Tathagata, the one thus come. And you don't ask what its meaning is or anything. There's a lovely story in the Buddhist texts where the Buddha, at the opening of a sermon, simply held up the lotus. That was the sermon. There was only one person in the whole audience, Mahakashyapa, who gave just a little sign of his eye. He got the sermon. And so the others having missed it, Buddha gave a sermon. Uh, the sense of just the flower. Now that flower expanded. You perhaps remember in the first talk I gave, I said the mystery of being is completely present in flower, in a bowl, in anything. The mystery of the being of this here is the same as the mystery of the being of the universe. This has been put to use. We have a use for it. We have applied this being. But it's, it can be regarded in terms of its mystery. And so the universe as well. The art object brings us to focus on that thing which it is and no other thing. And the whole mystery, the whole fascination of our own life and all life is right in that. That's point one in the aesthetics. And this is the beginning of the creation of a mythology. We say... Who made the world? God made the world. Why did God make the world? Well, then you can invent a lot of thoughts about that. But you've simply postponed the point. 
what about God? You're not supposed to ask, why is God there? Well, let's cut short and don't ask why the world is here either. God becomes an end term. This object in the picture is now an end term. It doesn't relate to anything. It is a final thing in itself, and we are linked to it. Now we come to the next point. Suppose there are human beings in the picture. Or in a tragedy, suppose it deals with human action and so on. How are we going to render that without getting desire and loathing some human being, desirable. Joyce moves along now to the problem of the tragic emotions. The tragic emotions, as Aristotle uh, identifies them, are pity and terror. What are these? Well, Joyce says Aristotle has not defined them. I have. Yeah, definitions are as follows. These are very great clues. Terror is the emotion that arrests the mind. Now, there's arrest there, that's stasis. In the face of whatsoever is grave and constant in human suffering and unites it with the secret cause. Terror is the emotion that arrests the mind. In the face of whatsoever is grave and constant. That's very important in human suffering, and unites it with the secret cause. Pity, a lot of dittos, is the emotion that arrests the mind in the face of whatsoever is grave and constant in human suffering, and unites it with the human sufferer. Now let's ask, what is the secret cause? Mr. A kills Mr. B. The cause, the instrumental cause, accidental cause, the incidental cause of Mr. B's death is Mr. A. Mr. A's bullet, his knife, Mr. A's political theory. If in a work of art you are accenting the peculiarity of Mr. A and the peculiarity of Mr. B so that we think, oh, if that hadn't happened, well, Mr. B wouldn't be dead. Let's say if you feel that things could be corrected so that Mr. B would not now be dead, you do not have a tragic work. The tragic work is a work in which the secret cause of Mr. B's death is what comes through. What that is, is time and mortality. So that you feel the inevitability of death, you feel the human experience there, the grave and constant thing, not the peculiar and accidental or incidental but that which cannot be changed. This is why social criticism does not fall in this category. You can't have both social criticism and tragedy. The social criticism is concentrating on the foreground, on the social structure, on things that can be changed. The tragedy is uh, focusing on the background, what cannot be changed, which shines through all foregrounds. We're in the religious sphere here. Pity is the emotion that arrests the mind so forth before the human sufferer, not the Negro sufferer, not the communist sufferer, not the fascist sufferer, not the Jew sufferer, not the Irish sufferer, the sufferer. It's a human being, and this is human suffering, and it cannot be changed either. And the pity that goes out is now for the human condition. With this, you are pushed 
past the whole context of what might be called the foreground of the changes in the world and put in touch with the grave and constant. Now, these grave and constants have to do with the inevitables of human life. 